If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 30. You may still be there from what Russell read earlier. Um, Isaiah chapter 30. If you're not sure where Isaiah is, just find the book of Psalms right there in the middle of your Bible and head right. You'll eventually see the large book of Isaiah. And we'll be looking at all of chapter 30 uh, this afternoon. Uh, the first part of the chapter that, that Russell read is filled with, it's filled with sorrow. And it's filled with regret as the Lord reveals the stubbornness and the lack of faith of his people, specifically in their alliance with Egypt against the Assyrians and their refusal to listen to his word. But the chapter ends with a picture of God's grace and mercy and justice that causes his people to eternally rejoice. The hinge, then, that this passage turns on is found in verse 18, where God is shown to be gracious, merciful, and just, where he's shown to be a God who patiently waits for his people to return to him. And so, if you would, look with me at the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 18. God's word says, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, Be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days." in the days when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept, and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard, and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger, and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstone. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. 
battling with brandished arms, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. The chapter begins back in verse 1 with three words. Words that you may have spoken at some point in your life. Ah, stubborn children. (laughs) Have you ever had the... Have you had any uh, experience with stubborn children? Maybe you've seen a stubborn child in the checkout line at Kroger. Maybe you were or you are a stubborn child. Maybe you were or you are the parent of a stubborn child. Maybe you were a stubborn child who is now the parent of a stubborn child. (laughs) However we experience children in their stubbornness, we can relate to the Lord as he looks at his people and sees in them obstinance and foolishness and rebellion. From the perspective of a parent, one of the hardest things to be towards a stubborn child is patient. You want them to move, to act, to change, to eat their dinner, to put on this shirt, to get in the car or we're going to be late for church and they refuse, and I get impatient. I mean, you get impatient. I mean, we all get impatient, right? But despite our impatience, stubborn children still don't listen because, well, because they're stubborn, (laughs) because of their pride. And they don't listen because they don't trust that their parents are actually seeking their best. As adults, some of us can look back at our childhood attitudes, and, and we say something like, I was so stubborn, I was so unteachable. I I wish I would have listened to my parents more. You know, they only wanted the best for me. Today, as we consider Judah's stubbornness, I imagine that we will also see ourselves. But I pray that we also see Judah's God. We see our God. And we see that, that who he longed to be towards Judah is also who he longs to be towards us. That he waits to show us mercy and grace that he longs to bless us. Like a stubborn child now grown and wiser by God's grace, I pray that we would see that God is worthy of our trust and that he only desires our good. And so to that end, this is our big idea for today. God's loving patience in the midst of our stubborn rebellion is a great mercy. Receive it with gratitude. That's a little long. I'll say it at least one more time. (laughs) God's loving patience in the midst of our stubborn rebellion is a great mercy. And because God's loving patience in the midst of our stubborn rebellion is a great mercy, how should we respond? Receive it. Receive his mercy with gratitude. As we think on this big idea, let's look first at verses 1 through 17. And in verses 1 through 17, we find that like Judah, we are stubborn and faithless children. That's our first big idea, our first point, I should say. We are stubborn and faithless children, verses 1 through 17. Uh, The situation in Judah is the same as it has been. They are concerned about the threat of the Assyrian army coming to destroy them, just as they have destroyed all of the surrounding nations. And out of their fear, they don't trust the Lord. What do they do? They form an alliance with Egypt. 
reminiscent of the disastrous treaty that Israel made with Gibeah in Joshua chapter 9, it's clear in verse 1 that Judah does not seek the Lord first, but they instead of their own volition send ambassadors down to Egypt, seeking the protection of Pharaoh and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt, verse 2. Of all places to turn to, how, how devastating that God's people turn to Egypt. Egypt, who had enslaved them. Egypt, who they had been rescued out of, but now they get what they all wanted back in Exodus 16 when they complained to Moses for the first time. Verse 6 describes this journey back to Egypt, and it's clearly a dangerous one with, with lions and serpents, but it's also a demoralizing one because it seems that the envoys from Judah that are heading back to Egypt are forced to take a route similar to the one that they took in the Exodus. Not, not the, the quick route that would have gone directly through Canaan, but rather the roundabout route to avoid threatening armies. There they are in the wilderness again with their donkeys and their camel, camels filled with the treasures of Jerusalem picked out by King Hezekiah to woo the Egyptians. And now, we think about that. He picks out these things. When they, when they had left Egypt in the Exodus, you remember, Moses tells us that they plundered the Egyptians. They took gold with them. And now, it could be that some of the very treasures that they had taken out of Egypt, they're now taking back. They've taken it out of the king's palace. They've taken them out of the temple. And they're taking them back to Egypt as payment for protection. But the help of Egypt is worthless. In verse 7, Isaiah, who likes to give nations and cities names, Isaiah calls Egypt Rahab, who sits still, or Rahab, the do-nothing. Rahab is a common Old Testament name for Egypt, and it means arrogant or boastful. And so Isaiah is saying that Egypt is like the person that you knew or that you know who talks big, but when the action comes, they're nowhere to be found. They flex their muscles, but they don't know how to use them. They're all talk. That's Egypt. Therefore, the result of trusting in Egypt is shame and humiliation. Shame is this word repeated in verses 3 through 5, reminding us that all refuges other than the Lord are not only worthless, but they're going to turn to our shame. They will embarrass us. Looking at these first seven verses, it's clear that the stubbornness and the faithlessness of Judah is found in the fact that they refuse to trust the Lord. They refuse to trust the Lord. And so too, our stubbornness also leads us to refuse to trust the Lord. Instead, we trust our own Egypts. We place our confidence in things other than the Lord, other than the Lord. when we are fearful or uncertain or threatened. We don't turn to the Lord, we turn to other refuges. And these places wherein we put our trust often have created well-worn paths in our hearts. Rather than faith in the Lord, we give these things the best. We give these do-nothing refuges all that we have, and they only lead to our shame. We might turn to food or to alcohol or to drugs to numb the pain of life rather than the Lord. We might seek to escape the dif difficulties of life through endless entertainment or frivolous spending. We might turn from our feelings of aloneness to pornography or to gossip. We might in our weakness allow voices of anger or pride to fill our hearts. Or we might just look inside ourselves to the, to the work of our own hands and the rule keeping that we're prone to, trusting in who we are rather than admitting our need 
trusting to the Lord, trusting the Lord. In our fear, in the face of our enemies and in the face of temptation, those things that would destroy our souls, what are the false, do-nothing, shame-inducing refuges that we turn to? What do you turn to when temptation and fear comes? There's a tendency in difficulty and in fear to return to the same old refuges that we trusted in the past and thereby stubbornly refuse to trust the Lord. The stubbornness of Judah and of us is also seen not only in the fact that they refuse to trust the Lord, but also that we refuse to listen to the word of the Lord. We refuse to trust the Lord, and we refuse to listen to the word of the Lord, which may in fact be why we refuse to trust the Lord, but either way, this theme of refusing to listen to the Lord continues in verses 8 through 14. Isaiah is told, write these things down so that the people have a record of what they ignored. And that's what we have right here. What we find is that it it wasn't that they didn't want to hear anything from the Lord. It was simply that they didn't want to hear hard and difficult words from the Lord. They said to the the seers and the prophets, don't don't speak truth to us. Only speak words of comfort and peace. Just tell us what we want to hear, even if it's just an illusion. Can you relate to that? I know I do. I know that we, we gravitate towards the truths that make us feel good, that are not bitter, but are, or that are not bitter or, or harsh, truths that, that don't confront us, but truths that comfort us. But we must hear hard words from the Lord. We have to see our sin so that we can turn from it and find life. To refuse to listen to, to all of God's word is only going to lead to our destruction. And Isaiah says we'll be like a wall meant for defense that's about to collapse and our, our lives will collapse and we will have no defense against the enemies of our souls. We'll be like a pot smashed to pieces and our lives will be useless and unable to hold the water of life. When we refuse to hear God's word, we look like foolish children who put their fingers in their ears and they shout over and over again, I can't hear you, I can't hear you, while those who love them are just seeking their blessing, even if they're trying to tell them hard truths. The result of stubbornly refusing to trust the Lord or to listen to his word is shameful defeat. Verses 15 through 17 show that they were hoping in the speed of horses and the power of Egypt, but their enemy would in fact be faster, to which the commentator Motyer says, When we refuse the way of faith, whatever we choose turns against us. We seek to be swift, only to find out how swift are our foes. One of the blessings of obedience in Leviticus 26.8 says, Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. But here, for God's people, the opposite is true, as a thousand of the Lord's people are fleeing from one Assyrian. Thinking on Judah's stubbornness and our own stubbornness and faithlessness, maybe we could think about it with the image of the prodigal son. Hold that image of the prodigal son that we know so well from Luke 15. Hold that before your eyes for a moment. Just kind of watch him arrogantly insulting his father when he asks for his inheritance. Watch him refuse to listen to him, refuse to listen to anyone else. Watch him go to his own Egypt and waste all of his money, and waste his life on things that only bring shame into him, to him. See him there in the, in the pigsty, 
And he's ready to eat the slop of the pigs. And as you see him, what do we see? Well, we see a man who foolishly rejected the Lord, who, who has refused to hear God's word, who is filled with shame, shame of his own making. But we also see a son, a son of the father. Is he stubborn and faithless? Very much so. Is he a child of the father? Yes, very much so. And so from this image of a stubborn and faithless child, we turn in verses 18 through 33 to a patient, gracious, and faithful father. A patient, gracious, and faithful father. As we think about these two sections coming together, remember that verse 18 is the hinge of this passage. So it it looks back and it looks forward. And the first thing that we find in verse 18 is that God is waiting. And when you hear that, we might ask, why is he waiting? And the answer is what we've just discussed. He's waiting because his people are stubbornly refusing to trust him or to listen to his word. Now, when you think about waiting, you might be like me. And, and when we think about waiting, we, we couple it with impatience because we all hate to wait. And we're not very good at waiting. Or maybe when you think about God waiting, we imagine that God is, is waiting to show us mercy because he wants to teach us a lesson. That maybe he, he won't show us grace until we've been forced to squirm a little bit, you know. But this verse doesn't seem to indicate those things. I think this verse indicates that the waiting of God is in fact filled with longing, not impatience. He, he waits with hope, not despair. He waits with the desire to bless us, not to curse us. He waits, back to the prodigal son, he waits like the father of the prodigal waited. He waits with love and with grace and with mercy. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is not slow in coming back, in returning, but rather he's patient. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone to repent, or anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And Romans 2.4 tells us that God's kindness and forbearance and patience are meant to lead us to repentance. And so we know the answer to our next question, which is, what is God waiting for? He's waiting for his people to repent. Look back at verse 15 of chapter 30. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. You were stubborn. God is waiting for His people to return and rest in Him, to repent and to believe His Word. Now, thinking about repentance in this context, we see clearly that at its heart is turning to the Lord by turning away from every other refuge. The Lord is not waiting for us to get better or to try harder or to clean ourselves up more. He's waiting for us to see the shame and foolishness of all of our false refuges and turn to him. He wants us to look at the slop in the pig trough and to come to ourselves, realizing that our Father longs to bless us. He, he wants us to see that we have sinned against heaven and before his sight and begin walking the road back to him. And when he sees us coming back to him, what's he going to do? He will run down the road to meet us. He will cover our shame 
and he will treat us as dearly loved sons and daughters. Do you see the prodigal son's father in verse 19? The second part of verse 19, it says, he will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers it. (laughs) How encouraging is that? Oh, it's encouraging to my stubborn heart that just wants to wait and doesn't trust God's mercy. But he is waiting and wants to run to us. The Father is waiting for us to repent. But as he waits, he also, he's done everything necessary to receive us and to forgive us. The reason the Father can run is because Jesus has come. God has sent his son, Jesus, who who never rested in false refuges, but always trusted his Father. Jesus laid down his life to pay the price for our stubbornness and for our foolishness. And he calls us to return and to repent and to trust in him alone for our salvation and for our eternal lives. Brothers and sisters, God's loving patience in the midst of our stubborn rebellion is a great mercy. And great mercy is such an inadequate way to say it. But it is a great mercy. Receive it with gratitude. Don't be stubborn and resist it. Do you want to know God's blessing? Then trust in the one who is always seeking your good. Trust in the one who will never cause you to feel shame for trusting in him. Trust in the one who has died to give you life. Return to him. Rest in him every moment of your lives. Throw off your Egypts. Listen to God's word and trust in him because Jesus is a sure foundation and an eternal refuge that will never fail us. Well, what will it look like to live trusting the Lord and knowing his grace, mercy, justice, and blessing? The answer is revealed in this passage in three images. There are probably more than that, but these three images will serve well as sort of pegs to hang our thoughts on. They show us what God's grace and mercy and justice look like as we walk in the way of blessedness. And so if we're going to trust the Lord, if we're going to walk in this way, when we live lives of repentance and faith, humbly trusting the Lord and listening to his word, then the Lord is our teacher. The Lord is our teacher, verses 19 through 22. The Lord is our teacher, but his classroom is not always an easy one. This is an AP course, because verse 20 tells us that his lessons sometimes involve adversity and pain of his own doing. Barry Webb sort of describes verses 20 through 21 by saying he he disciplines his people, that's the first part of verse 20, reveals himself to them, that's the second part of verse 20, and gently shows them the way out of it. (laughs) Out of the pain that he causes, our teacher is revealed, and then he whispers in our ear, and what's he say? This is the way. Walk in it. Don't walk in that way anymore. Walk in this way. And unlike before, when, when Judah and when we refused to listen to, to the prophet as he shouted in our ears, now we trust the Lord. And when he whispers through his word or through his spirit, it's like, it's like those noise-canceling headphones that you have in your ears. And you don't hear anything else, but you can hear the Lord whisper and tell you what to do. All other sounds are drowned out, and we hear him, and we obey Verse 22 also says that as we seek to listen to the Lord, we are also saying to all these other refuges, all these other idols, all these other Egypts, all of the things we're saying, be gone. I don't want to trust you anymore. I'm, I'm tuning you out and I'm listening to the Lord. I'm listening to him. He is my teacher. 
when we're living these lives, this blessed life of trusting the Lord. The Lord is our teacher. And secondly, the Lord is our healer. The Lord is our healer, verses 23 through 26. The, the primary picture in verses 23 through 26 is of the land. And God tells Judah that he's going to bring prosperity back into the land of Canaan. But then the, he brings it back so much so that the donkeys are eating well-seasoned fodder. Even the donkeys get a good meal in this land. That the picture goes beyond this world when it starts to talk about the moon shining like the sun and the sun shining seven times stronger. Isaiah is pointing to this new redeemed Jerusalem that we are waiting for. In verse 26, he also speaks about healing the brokenness of his people, healing even the wounds caused by his loving hand of discipline, healing the, the wounds that even he permits in his gracious providence. We know this healing in part through Christ now. We know the healing that he brings to us. But one day we also know that all of our wounds, even the deepest of them, will be healed. The scars that we all have on our hearts that are not even just scars. Some of them are still pretty open wounds. Some of them are too raw to even talk about. The Father's going to take all of those and he's going to bind them up. And he will heal them. Someone, you may need to hear that word of hope that, that God is a healer who will take the, the hardest things that you have faced and the most difficult pain that you know and he will bring healing to it. Receive that mercy with gratitude. As the Lord heals the earth and as the Lord heals our hearts, we see in verse 25 that he's also casting down towers in this day of, of great slaughter. And that leads us into this final and maybe the most difficult picture, which is that in verses 27 through 33, the Lord is a warrior. If we're trusting in God, then the Lord is a warrior fighting for us. If you read through these words and you think about the Exodus, they, they will sound familiar because they remind us of that. The, the opposite of what Judah was presently doing, going to Egypt to seek help. Uh, these words recall that day when they were released from Egypt and when Pharaoh followed them and then Pharaoh's army was destroyed and God's people rejoiced with songs. One of the first songs of praise in the Bible there in Exodus 15. And in this day that he's speaking of, the Lord is seen fighting for his people He's seen destroying Assyria, sifting them. And as he does so, it's punctuated by music as God's people sing at the destruction of Assyria. Now, rejoicing in the destruction of Assyria, rejoicing at the destruction of our enemies, it doesn't sit that easily with us. And so let me read some helpful words again from Barry Webb. I just found these succinct and better than I could say them. So here's what he says. Is it proper to celebrate something as terrible as what is described here? It's pretty terrible, verses 27 through 33. Is it proper to celebrate that? The unhesitating reply of Isaiah and of the Bible as a whole is yes. The singing joyful hearts which God's people will have when God overthrows their enemies will be his gift to them. There will be no regret or wishing that things were other than they are for God's judgment will be seen to be absolutely just and right, the absolutely just and right thing that it is. The Lord's action as a warrior is the final expression of his grace 
to those who have cried out to him for salvation. There can be no salvation, however, without judgment. And in the end, the choice is ours. The Lord is the warrior, and we must all finally meet him as either deliverer or destroyer. Not easy words, but I think they lead us to Jesus and to the gospel. The, those final t- statements, they turn us to Jesus because Jesus is the one who, who came to this earth as, as the greatest teacher, leading us into truth and leaving his spirit to guide us all our days. Jesus is the great healer who heals the sickness and, and disease that we have and who healed the sickness and diseases of anyone he met and who heals our very souls as we trust in him. And Jesus is the warrior Jesus is the warrior who through the force of love has defeated sin and death and who will destroy Satan on the final day in a way similar to verse 33 as it describes the destruction of the king of Assyria. And so Jesus, as we know, is prophet, priest, and king. But Jesus is also teacher, healer, and warrior. He alone is the safe refuge for our souls. Jesus reveals to us in technicolor God's loving patience in the midst of our stubborn rebellion. Jesus' mercy is great. And so today I would say, receive it. Receive his mercy with gratitude. In stubbornness, don't go look elsewhere. And in pride, don't think that you can save yourself. Rather, Rather, see God's loving patience. See your own stubborn rebellion. See his great mercy and receive it with gratitude and receive it now this afternoon in a unique way through the Lord's Supper let's receive God's mercy as we remember what Christ has done through his broken body and his shed blood as you take the cup and the and the bread this morning let's announce together that we serve a Lord who longs to be gracious to us let's exalt Jesus, as we take the Lord's Supper, because the Lord is exalted, how? By showing mercy to us. And there's no greater mercy than what Christ has done for us. Let's remember that that our God is a God of justice who blesses everyone who repents and believes in him.